Hello, everybody. It is the Ides of December, and you're listening to Trashback Ratio. I'm here. I'm Jackson Tyler. With me, as always, is Destiny Servant. Hello. Hello. Uh, Kyle Turner. Hey there. Hey! And Matthew Marco. Hi, I have a question, Jackson. Uh, go ahead, yes. What episode is this? I actually don't know, that's why I'm asking. <laughs> okay, I believe it it's episode 17. Okay. Um, not 100% sure. Let's check. We've been going for, like, well over a year at this point. Well, a year's August, yeah. Uh, 17. Wow. For some reason, I thought we were only, like, seven episodes in, and I'm pretty sure on the last Badland Girls I said... Yeah, and I, I was like, no, we've been going for at least a year. <laughs> Trash Pit Ratio was when, like, when Trash Pit Ratio started was when me and Destiny first started talking. Oh my goodness. So. <laughs> Our friendiversary. That's the... <laughs> I mean, that's... You get, you've been talking before that, I think, pretty sure. So. But we weren't friends when we first started talking. I remember being nervous sending Destiny the Skype message going, Destiny, do you want to be on this podcast? Mm. Aw. Uh, yeah, I know. It's our friendiversary. I, I mean, I wouldn't say that. Anniversary. I would. I really wouldn't say that, but you. You it's would. It's our special day. How's everyone else? I don't remember that song. <laughs> how's How's everyone doing? Did anyone see any movies? This is uh, apparently a movie podcast. What? This is a movie <laughs> podcast. What? It's movies, films. I don't believe you. Films. <laughs> Who's seen okay. a film? Film. Um, I'm trying to think. What was the last movie I watched? I saw The Hunger Games Mockingjay Part 2. You did? I didn't get to see that because I've been busy, but what did you think? I thought it was really good. I liked it lots. Yay! Um, I miss Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yes. I wish there were more movies from him coming out. Mm-hmm. Other than that, I don't really have anything to say other than, like, in hard political times, those movies feel more important than they probably should. That's downplaying but- them, but... I get what you mean. I mean, I don't. I don't know. I don't know why I feel weird like raising them up higher than. I don't know. They're good movies. Mm-hmm. Raising them up higher. higher yeah, yeah. Like I don't know why I'm like downplaying the importance of a movie, a series of films about like political upheaval and navigating the world when it's different. I mean, like, like that's they, important. They are a series of movies that have a consistent political point of view in a way that something like the marvel universe doesn't (laughs) good point so i think that's to be let's like regardless of whether the fact that it's relevant i think the fact that it has that and that's like part of its identity is actually cool and i don't find them irrelevant like i I, I find them hella relevant Mm -hmm. no no Hell, re- no, no. <laughs> you calling an end to this painful charade or whatever? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Did we talk about Spectre yet? I guess. Yeah, we don't I do was that. waiting. <laughs> yeah. We all saw Spectre, and we've all been storing up our Spectre thoughts for uh, like three weeks now to have the Spectre talk. So, who wants to begin? Who wants to go first with the Spectre? I do. I want to begin first because I was fighting with someone about this this morning. I saw <laughs> some of the fight, but go ahead, Kyle. Go, 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 go. Okay, so Spectre might be like one of my new favorite James Bond films. Mm-hmm. Um, it's so weird. I think I've seen it three times in theaters now. Um, the third was kind of unintentional. I was waiting for Creed start, to start, so I just kind of slipped into another uh, screening room. But... Um, <laughs> 
I don't care about how contrived the retcon is, but I think um, the fact that that it recontextualizes James Bond, the character, and and essentially argues against his very existence in a contemporary universe, I think is really, really interesting. Like, death looms in every frame, and it's very dusty and so strange. It is such a weird movie, and I really admire it for being so odd and so atypical with in the Bond franchise. And I think it's really the closest we've ever gotten to James Bond via art house. And I, I like that. I like that. It's kind of nonsensical and incoherent at times and is much more interested in, um, manifesting themes through aesthetics than necessarily through plot. Mm -hmm. I have to agree. Like there's just something about the look of it and, the fact that they kind of go for an artier feel than a substantive message. And there's still one there. And Mm -hmm. like even more so with the newer films, I don't know. It just, they work. I I can't say I'm not entertained. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of the things I thought about it uh, specifically uh, to its retcons and its continuity is I think it had this really smart approach to continuity that you don't see uh, so much anymore in that it didn't give a shit about it by pretending to. Like, mm-hmm. it cared about continuity in so much as it wanted to link everything together, but it didn't actually care about specifics. Like, it was right. all about, we have this story to tell and we're going to pull in these other elements from other stories, but only so much as we need them and only so much as mm-hmm. to make a point. It was, was, wasn't obsessed with... Um, just uh like keeping continuity it didn't care about that and i like the mm-hmm. continuity as tool for storytelling rather than the other way around mm-hmm. and i like this idea oh sorry oh no go on i i like this idea of the films being recontextualized in in two directions either viewing this as a way to argue against james bond james bond's existence or in a slightly more straightforward way um the film's being like a four-part revenge movie. Mm-hmm. And, and I get it, that's only ever slightly precluded on this idea of continuity, but I think that emotional arc is consistent throughout the film films, even though I pretend Quantum of Solace doesn't exist. Um, but that intensity and that... I, I don't know. I just... I like it. <laughs> yeah. I, I've run out of words. I was I, too busy arguing with someone this morning, so I, I used all my words. Mm-hmm. Why so were they said, arguing? Uh, what were they saying? Oh, they said it was bad, and that Quantum of Solace was better, and that it was that Spectre was half baked. I was like, no, you're wrong. It's awful. I don't know how anyone could like Quantum of Solace better. I, me either. I, I don't know how anyone could like Quantum of Solace. Period. <laughs> Well, Judy Dench is furious with him. Uh, that's, <laughs> yeah, and um, I don't know. I've seen that opinion uh, around the place. I don't want to dismiss it because you know, like what you like, folks. But... I do want to dismiss. <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, like it doesn't doesn't give a shit about what happened. I don't remember what happened in Quantum. There's there's what is it? So the, the opera exactly. scene, um, weird tablet tables where they slide faces around like it's the fake future i don't remember that they had a and i've seen that movie like four times <laughs> how have you seen that movie four times because 
it's kind of like I've seen Manhunter eight times and I still hate it. <laughs> and I keep trying. I, I try to be sort of open-minded sometimes and I want to give things a chance and I want to see what other people see in these things and then I just don't see them and then I'm slightly go crazier each time. Mm-hmm. Or is that ableist? I'm sorry. Just I. It's awful. Both movies are awful, just in different ways. Uh, back to Spectre. One of the things I wanted to talk about that I... Uh, took away as a read from it is I love the way um, that uh, Daniel Craig's Bond specifically has like progressed and changed in uh, his portrayal of like Bond as a sexual person because mm-hmm. in in um, Spectre like there is not there's not a single sexy frame in that entire movie it is the deadest dullest like most in are the, you sure I don't agree with that yeah, yeah. I don't agree with yeah. that at all <laughs> I completely agree with that. Why? When? Of when... course, you agree with your own opinion. <laughs> the opening, the entire opening, is him like seducing a woman, and then he runs away from her. And no. then there's the whole plot with the uh, daughter of the one guy. I'm really, oh, I, would, thank you. I would say that there that for these frames to be dead and and kind of muted and diffused does not mean that they're not sexy. I think that adds to the sexiness of them. I think there's an, a very languid quality to them that is very different from Skyfall, but I think it still has a potent sexual energy to them. I guess my point is more that, like, the in Bond, Casino, in, in Bond, in Casino Royale, Bond, like, Daniel Craig's Bond is, like, introduced, uh, here's that shot like uh, the reference to the Doctor No shot comes out the water. He is like this sexy, cool guy, physical energy in the way that Bond hasn't been uh, bef- uh, like for a while because of the like recontextualizing of the character. But by now, he's just this husk who is incapable of emotionally or physically connecting to anyone in any other in any way. Like what I loved about the opening is how completely and totally disinterested James Bond is in any kind of physical act. Like the woman's trying to like get into this seduction, he's just like fuck off. I'm gonna go kill someone now. Goodbye. Um, but then he falls in love. The, that's right. yeah no the he like the and, movie is and, the story of him trying to regain some of that physicality by the end but and the camera definitely objectifies him in that opening sequence because that ass <laughs> for real though yeah i don't know i guess i like have a specific read on uh daniel craig's progression in that sense i don't know uh i like that uh, i know uh, matt has their own read on specter that's completely different to all of this stuff. Um, yeah, sure. Sorry. I've been real quiet. I'm not feeling particularly well today. Um, so for me, the Mendes Bond in general is like, if you look at the first, say, like 10 James Bond movies, there's this very pre-internet, pre-cable television, like travelogue quality to them, where it's giving you new locations to visit to like relish the exoticism of the world, which is it's like this own colonial mess but it is what it is in that era um and these movies i feel like return to that but with the awareness of that's what that represents so you have these movies that are about like this dead end of post-colonial western civilization of these like the two of the like stuffiest richest white men running around places they used to own killing each other that i think kind of underlines the the sadness of like not just james bond but like Britain or even the extend that to the United States as well. It's like this movie doesn't really argue 
that Bond shouldn't exist to me. It argues that, of course, Bond exists. This is what happens when we try to take over the world and lose our grasp on that. Uh, and you have, like, for me, it was, like, that scene where they take the train out to the middle of the desert and it's, like, this Orient Express, like, romantic train and then they get there and it's just, there's nothing around but this, like, quaint little train station and then a Rolls Royce pulls up. <laughs> and you get the sense of, like, these are... Like the relics of uh, like the British Empire that used to exist that just has been like blasted off the face of the earth, and yet mm-hmm. you have these characters that are like the establishment. Like James Bond mm-hmm. is like the hired gun of the Queen, and uh, Blofeld, whatever, is like the Spoilers. modern idea. The modern idea. No, of, that's like, not a spoiler. Of, no. of, of, of an intelligence agency. And they are like the heritage and like the birthright of what like Western civilization as in terms of governments. And the the only thing they can do effectively is kill each other. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the things I love about the Mendes Blonde movie specifically and how they like reinforce that is just every single shot of London or just Britain is the grayest, most dour place imaginable. Uh, and all the other places in the world are just beautiful yeah. and colorful and... Mm-hmm. buzzing yeah, with activity there's i would I, oh Kyoga. i would say in my argument again that the films argue against the existence of james bond it's i what i mean not about what i mean by that is james bond is emblematic of a very specific idea of british nationalism which i don't think exists anymore because it's crumbling away like in skyfall there are all these flags that are like either tattered or they're being used as particular iconography um with regard to that system not working anymore or not ha- having the same relevance that it once did that's what i meant mm-hmm. well yeah because okay. like the least believable thing inspector is the idea that the uh, british government could lead a worldwide initiative on anything um <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> um uh so yeah like yeah i don't know i agree with that uh I feel like the movie is less arguing against the existence of James Bond, but more saying, like, James Bond doesn't really exist, but if he did, he would be even this assassin, like, this basically king's assassin relic of medieval times and, like, colonialist rule, uh, would think that modern intelligence agencies and, like, what we think of as modern security is a horrifying concept. That's like that is what I I got from that. I was like, even James Bond sees this and is repelled. That is how far from the path we have strayed. I think it's worth mentioning uh, that the movie never refers to James Bond or anything he does as spy work. He's it is assassin. he's literally an assassin. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. that's a good point. Because yeah, they have that. The one time he does spy work, he does it in the most like it's. Um, he just destroys that hotel looking for the thing and can't find it. Um, when his one goal is to like kind of be surreptitious and find where the thing is, he destroys a room pointlessly. He's not good at anything but shooting people. Uh, I love the shot with the mouse or the rat or whatever. That's why he loses the girl too. Because mm-hmm. all he can do is kill and she's like, I can't be part of this life. And then she gets kidnapped. Oh no! Yep. All you need is kill. That's the one. <laughs> That's a good movie too. Uh, any any final Skyfall thoughts before we move on to other stuff? Spectre. Spectre. They, look, if they don't want me to get the names confused, they shouldn't be so similar. 
Uh, it, I, I would argue that it has the best Bond theme since Goldeneye. Oh my god, you're, you're ludicrous, crazy. man. I really, really like Adele's. So Adele I... is probably number two, but it's like the first Bond ballad I don't hate. Like, I really like it. I like that it became like a theme in the actual movie. Like, Ugh. yeah, I like Ugh. I like I like I it a really lot. Like it. I just no. didn't think it was as good as Skyfall. I really, yeah. it's better than Skyfall. I think it's yeah. uh, not as good. This as is you know awful. You know, my name is I, my favorite of the recent Bond. You know, my name is the best to the Craig and arguably one of the best to throughout history the franchise's history agreed but wow that that nope. sam smith song is awful no so it's bad so weird <laughs> it's so bad i have a little bit more it's grown on me a little bit um but i think it's still so i think there are parts of it that work but not together in this song and not in this context because I, mm. the thing that does not work for me is that this song is nothing but sincere and james bond is not sincere he does not he's I, never I, bond things are I, sincere. I think bond like bond as like a narrative thing like the movies are 100 percent sincere yeah bond as a character though is not sincere so so that i don't i don't think i don't think you need the character to be thematic. sincere for the theme to work as like a, a statement but, of sincerity. Yeah, I agree. I don't agree because if this song is coming, if this is ostensibly coming from the perspective of James Bond, that seems very antithetical to also, what James I'm not Bond entirely did. sure. I'm not entirely sure I would agree that Bond is insincere. I don't think, I think Bond is completely sincere. Like he kills for his country because he believes it's right. Yeah, he, he kills for his country, but I don't think he's sincere with the, regards to this context of romance. That does not make sense. I didn't see it as romance i saw that as like his ballad tip. like he's doing this for m that's what starts this right he's doing this for judy dench yeah uh-huh. and that that is who the ballad is too i don't agree yeah and also i don't know i just i guess i don't see bond themes as extensions of bond's own feelings 100 percent of the time i think no, they're I don't a little think more general I, and i think they're they tend to be more general except for when in the few instances that they are not like you know you know my name I think. Mm-hmm. And I don't like that song at all, especially uh, compared to Goldeneye. <laughs> Goldeneye is great. Goldeneye is freaking up there. Goldeneye, I think, is 006 talking to 007. Mm. I think it's a very S&M um, You know, song, I don't remember sorry. the movie at all, so... <laughs> um, Not a, I am invincible. To speak to. Yeah, no, that Sam Smith song is... I really hate it. No, you're wrong. Yeah, you're wrong. No, I you're wrong. Agree. You are wrong. And that's where we leave the Sam Smith the in argument. general is boring. I, I have no idea that. who Sam Smith is outside of his Bond song. But He's I got an okay voice. I thought he was a black person when I first heard him, so I can't dislike him. He's got a good voice. I just don't... I'm kind of like in the same... He's so wallowy. It's just eh. mad at Well, I mean, that's the perfect person you want for a Bond theme. Our greatest wallowy, wallowy no. Have no. done Bond themes. I know our greatest crooners have, but I don't think they fall into the 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 plane of Wallowy. Matt Monroe, Tom Jones, they're not Wallowy. They've got come on. Rabbi Tom Christ. Jones's Bond theme was not a ballad, though. So and also, it's ridiculous. Yeah, it's good, but it's ridiculous. It's a, it's a hilarious Tom Jones song. It's a bad Bond theme. Yep. Oh, I love it. I think it's fantastic. Come no. to the hotel this, this weekend. Way, I mean, all I'm of thinking, it's subjective, yeah. but like, I don't, I just, I can't agree. <laughs> That's all right. It's fine. This is the, this is the Bond theme talk. You got to get it out. Everyone has to get say their piece. Uh, That's all I really had to say. I'm just a big fan of bombast, and as long as they don't feel it that, I'm okay with them. So how, I'm not I a think Bond the theme. Spell that bombast. Sorry. 
I think this failed at Bombast. Really? Yes. It's just a massive I... funeral march. Like, it's like, this is going to go badly for everyone. Like, I really like but it. But so is... I guess my thing is a lot of them kind of feel that way to me. I 100% think this movie achieves bombast in most of its moments. There's no, I yes, think like, it does, but the I don't opening think the sequence is like ludicrous. <laughs> and it's so dark and wonderful. And I mean, Skyfall is really dark. It's very too. touch I, of evil. The first, the first moment after like the ex- first explosion in the opening is he lands on a sofa. Like, right. <laughs> like come on. No, I'm not. I'm not arguing that the film in and of itself doesn't do bombast i'm saying the theme doesn't do yeah, bombast. no we weren't talking about that oh, okay. anymore right. oh well uh let's bring the sky the sky for fucks i can't i'm bad at hosting let's bring the spectre talk to an end <laughs> sky <end>. fox sky fox <laughs> what is sky fox isn't a thing let's bring, let's bring this spectre talk <laughs> just the two words with two syllables and they both begin in s i'm i'm only one man uh, okay. <laughs> um we we all enjoyed it for as much as we can argue about the minutiae. It's a good, it's a good oh, time. Can I ask? Can I ask? You can ask. Um, what is your answer to people who say that this is the worst James Bond film ever? I would go... they clearly haven't watched James <laughs> Bond movies. Yeah, I think that's weird. They need to go back in time, watch some older ones. I've I've, I've seen them, but I've heard some stories. Go I've like go so watch like you. Diamonds Are Forever or the later Roger Moore movies and get back to me. Go there's see a, Die Another Day and come back to me. called Octopussy. Yes, there <laughs> is. Really good. From 1983. There were two yeah. James Bond movies that year. Only one uh, was official, though. The late Roger Moore movies are goddamn terrible. He's still alive. I don't care. No, no, no. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> later period Roger Moore <laughs> I know. I know the I joke. Did. I know. I was, I was being ridiculous. <laughs> I don't get it. Don't worry about it. No, he said, Matt said the late Roger Moore and then Jackson said he's still alive. <laughs> Oh, okay. Yep, it really didn't need explaining. It's not that Matt good. Matt and Jackson are ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I would say go watch <laughs> Die Another Day. Watch any of the... James Bond movies are not always great. I think I think this like the only reason I could think for people not enjoying this movie is because they want James Bond to be an action franchise, and it's yeah. not that. The number one complaint I heard from people that I talked to about this movie that were like coworkers and such were just like, they didn't... One, they didn't like that James Bond had a backstory in Skyfall, and they didn't like that they go to his house and his name is James Bond from birth. So they didn't like that there was a continuation of James Bond sort of having a backstory. And also, yeah, they wanted it to be more of an action thing instead of the thing that the, it is. The complaints I saw that it like has all this old, goofy, bombastic stuff, but then like treats it super seriously, and they just found it dull and boring. Basically, it's not quippy enough. It's not... That's the, the complaints I've seen. It's not a big yeah, fun. I, it doesn't need to be that. Like, there's already like they're they're going to keep making Born and Mission Impossible until everyone is dead. Jason so. Statham is going to be acting a long time. You'll get the movies you want. No, because Crank Three will never exist. Don't say that, Destiny. That's a filthy <laughs> lie. <laughs> I am fine with there being two Crank movies because I still have as much as I enjoyed them. They had a lot of problems. Give me the, Crank Three. The new Mission Impossible <laughs> movie, by the way, was pretty good. I enjoyed it quite a bit. I need to see it. I I need to show Destiny the rest of them so then we can watch the last one. That's the only reason I didn't see it. How many? I've only seen the first two. Oh, you've only seen, uh, so you've seen the best. No, you haven't. I was I was joking. <laughs> I guess I don't remember the second. You know one. what? When it came out. I would say that she's seen the best ones, even as much as I like a Go to Call. Mm-hmm. Actually, yeah, I guess Mission Impossible One is this really. Small. Mission Impossible One is a great film, and Mission Impossible Two is an amazing <laughs> film. <laughs> 
Mission Impossible 2? He it's takes terrible. He takes off it's, the mask. Oh yeah, it's awful. And then he takes off the mask again. <laughs> Don't see the third one. It's it's the worst of them by a, like a long we'll, way. We'll watch all of them. I'm curious. I, I want to know. The third one was the best one. And that is not. True. It has a really good um, Philip Seymour Hoffman turn though, so you get that. All Philip Seymour Hoffman movies. Are I good. feel like, thankfully, people have reappraised J.J. Abrams' talent in the past 15 years since that movie came out, or however long it's been. Yeah. yeah. In what way? In that he's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> mm. He's hit and miss. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Mission Impossible 3 is bad, that's my opinion. But no, I like the, the fifth one. Um, is there any other movies people have seen? Because we went on for a while. Is there anything else anyone specifically wants to talk about, or should we move into the club movie? Me and Destiny got a new movie theater. Oh, I hate you so much. <laughs> I hate <laughs> both of you so much. It was We're very exciting. We go there all the time now. <laughs> yeah, do you? How is it? Our element with Dra- Draft House. Yeah? Is it good? Is it a good place? Yeah, to be yeah. great. <laughs> I've seen so many movies there already. <laughs> It's so the idea of having food in the movie theater. That's where it loses me. Does it? Is, does but that you work? eat when you watch movies. I do, but not in a movie theater. Like I'll probably have a popcorn, maybe, but that's it. Like you, you get a meal in and watch the movie at the same time, right? That's the draft house. Yeah, yeah. like going out to eat. You get. I mean, served. you can get popcorn if you so desire. But or you can just drink booze all or a milkshake. But no, you can have. Uh, I had a wrap the first time we saw. We saw Spectre. That was the first movie we saw there. But it. it, and it mm-hmm. hmm? Sorry. It, it works, right? It's a. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's not interruptive. It it doesn't stink. Like these are the thing. No. No. Okay. Good. No, we live in a clean young country, Jackson. No, but like I, I can't imagine. I can't imagine. <laughs> I can't imagine watching a film and then like have, smelling someone's like lasagna to the side of me. There's no lasagna. You don't have lasagna. It's or like a hot. Dog. It's like a burger place. I get also that like they're giant theaters with air conditioning. Like what? I'm sure it's fine. I don't know. It just look, look. In Britain, <laughs> we haven't even got to the part where we can have a theater that isn't the worst thing on earth. So an idea where you can sit, relax, and have some food is that's so advanced for our tiny minds. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I guess it's weird to me because I'm like, I don't have that problem at restaurants. That's true. I guess that's true. Good point. <laughs> that's a good point. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Okay, I, I, I walk back. But no, that's a... You enjoying the draft house? Yeah. Oh, yeah. How, uh, was, how was Battle Royale? Battle Royale on... So I had seen it when i was like probably 19 i guess and i had read the book as a teenager and really liked it and found the movie kind of off-putting in that i felt like it missed a lot of the points that the book was really good about um reappraising it i feel like that book or that movie is basically like the angry cry against millennial think pieces (laughs) (laughs) that is because it came out before they existed but it but worked. It's so much about how like older generations destroy young lives by making them think they need to like kill each other in competition. Like that's that is what it's about. Like the things that the book was about were about like the like high school competition system in Japan where everyone like had to go to cram school to take tests to get into good schools to get good jobs. And it was just like a like an early sign of the kind of things that happen now. It's like Oh, like everyone needs to get in, get a master's degree before you can get an entry level job. And like, it's, it's bad out there. And this like exaggeration that barely feels like an exaggeration of what if literally 
like adults said, you kids today have ruined society. You have to murder each other to make everybody feel better about it. Uh, oh, that sounds familiar. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it's weird how not uh, ludicrous the premise sounds compared to. I remember when that movie came out, everyone was like, oh, that's such a crazy idea. I can't believe that movie exists. It's like, it was like this weird, like, bastion of like shock cinema for like early cinephiles and mm-hmm. now it doesn't even like register it doesn't on the read that way yeah it's nowhere n- yeah no it's absolutely true I, especially when like the number one movie franchise right now is essentially the same plot <laughs> in a weird way i don't think hunger games has quite the generational uh oh, no, underpinnings it, it, it's Battle like... in other news there was a slash film article about our draft house because it's Star Wars themed, and they were like, "Here's some pictures of the lobby," and the comments were an unbearable amount of people saying, "Why the hell would anybody go to Omaha? What's that? It's uh, why waste this theater on Nebraska?" And I was very annoyed. We are a fucking like major city with we have an amazing theater culture. People need to step off. I was very annoyed. No, I got, like, got actual angry. I didn't realize I had any sort of like hometown feels until people were shitting on our movies hello no 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 one's gonna happen oh we were talking about the slash film article slash film article there's a slash film article about the draft house and pictures of the lobby why waste something as glorious as this in nebraska yeah are you kidding me yes there the comments were gross well i suppose it was here or cleveland (laughs) <laughs> it's like one they're probably going to get one in cleveland ohio has a great like if you want to find film nerds they're there they're you know also two people are going to them it's not like no one's going to the theater someone has posted a massive defense of omaha in this comment so that's pretty good yeah. we're a bastion of the arts like believe it or not why would like, someone ask like who would go to omaha i assume like people who live in omaha <laughs> like, also you know when, you know, the rent's too high to live in on the coasts, you're going to be crying to come here. So Every, bite me. Everything you folks have said about living in Omaha makes it sound great when I have to spend like twice the price of your normal cinema. You're like the draft house prices to get to a garbage 30 minute trailers, uh, no seating, awful yeah, Why cinema. are trailers so long? Gosh. I went to the theater recently and like. What theater? I, was, well, like what chain? I don't remember. I think it was Cinemark or okay, no, no, it wasn't Cinemark. It was a uh, bow tie. It's bow tie, and uh, I think this was when I saw a Spotlight or something. And at some point, I was just kind of getting bored. And I usually, I sometimes use my phone during the, the trailers because I, it's the trailers. No one cares. And then it just they, I wasn't, and they just kept going on and on. And then I checked my phone, and it was seventeen minutes. So since start time wait i think it's definitely like theater chain um hang on hang on hang on, hang on. is 17 minutes a long time of of i was about to say yeah. jackson explain what your movie going experience is once the lights dim and the actual okay. show starts start time lights dim opens up phone you get like 15 minutes of adverts and so 15 minutes after the start time the trailers begin Trailers. The trailers don't begin till at least fifteen minutes after the start time, and then you get that till about half an hour, and then there's a couple more minutes. So basically, thirty-five minutes past start time is when the movie will start here, uh, and that—that's that's not... all chains. Uh, it's really bad. 
It's awful. I think I think four trailers is the the amount you need in front of a movie. We usually more yeah, than that, and good. you've made a mistake. We usually have four or five I trailers. Think three but is fine. Yeah, like, I know, but four is like your upper limit. We have four or five trailers, and then uh, it's just the advertisements around them. The fact that you have advertisements after the lights dim, but before the movie starts, is ludicrous to me. No, yeah, we have a whole. We have probably more advertisements than trailers. I mean, I remember being totally weirded out when they introduced putting commercials on before the trailers because i was used to like the pre-roll having ads in it but then when it turned into like all right we're gonna dim the lights a little and do this entire like uh run of coke and sprite commercials like i remember being like what is the world coming to i don't know if i've been with like there's maybe a coke commercial but that's it like well now they show like a cell phone ad and then they'll show a Coke the cell phone ad, ad is well, usually folded into the keep your phone off ad, so I don't mind that. I don't really. Yeah, I guess it. you're right. Well, let's um, <laughs> AMC has like that's their thing. They do yep. the Coke ad. We, uh, just this week, ad. we were like, we want to go see Chirac, but it's only playing at AMC. I guess we'll wait till that comes out on home video. <laughs> <laughs> nope. I mean, isn't it already out on home video? Like it's it's an Amazon film. Oh, I don't know. Maybe no. They're only doing a theatrical release. Um, well, no, they're not only doing a theatrical re- release, but Amazon has not announced when it will be available for streaming on Amazon okay. Prime. But I know it's an Amazon yeah. film, so it's, yeah. Oh, I didn't know. That's only because of the distribution rights. Okay. But no, like, so. They, they're taking a different tactic because Beasts of No Nations failed so miserably um, at the box office. Mm-hmm. We um, probably get about, like, we'll have an insurance advert, an advert for whatever video game is out, an advert for Coke, Sprite, whatever. Like, it'll be a. It'll just be a fifteen-minute break of TV commercials, but sometimes I mean, other, we theaters, other theaters will have that. To. But it'll be before the. It'll be like while everyone's seating, like thirty minutes before. Yeah, no. it'll be before the trailers. Uh, sometimes before the start time, you have like local commercials that go around on a loop. But no, that's part of the show. No, that's un- that's unconscionable. It's part of the show. It's what you pay for. <laughs> it's what you pay <laughs> more than you pay for your expensive cinema for so angry and the draft house is great because they have pre-roll that's related to the movie you're seeing so before hunger games we got this cute little clip of jennifer lawrence on an italian talk show and before <laughs> and battle like, Royale, we, like one. Uh, yeah before battle Royale's like japanese game shows oh, uh, and trailers and before james bond it was like james bond parodies from around the world this is a yep. perfect cinema yeah. yeah i hope you get one because it's beautiful we, we, we won't i'm in the no. wrong country yeah, <laughs> I think that could branch out internationally or something similar. Well, I don't see why it's there so are far-fetched. nice cinemas in London. They're all in the middle of London and the most expensive things you've ever seen. There is a Curzon oh. near me that I'm going to try, but it doesn't have many screens. But anyway. Yeah, you told you told me about that one theater. There was 18 pounds a ticket, and I shat myself. <laughs> I remember when I used to pay three dollars and fifty cents for a movie ticket. To be fair, that is a cinema in Leicester Square. I, I I don't care. That is like an illegal amount of money to How pay for. How much is the cinema? How much did you say? Eighteen pounds a ticket. Whoa, that's like what twenty twenty seven dollars. Twenty seven dollars. Yeah. <gasps> How I much? I would not go to the movies I, anymore. And I used to I say would, there was never a price. It's in Leicester Square. Friend, I just that's still ridiculous. Like uh, a ticket to see a movie in Times Square is ridiculously expensive by my count, and that is somewhere around seventeen dollars. Oh, and I would probably still go. I'm not even going to front. Um, I wouldn't. The, no, price, I, the price for a movie at my local is £9, which for um, which is $13. The highest you'll pay here is for a 3D IMAX ticket. 
uh, at the real IMAX and it's thirteen dollars. Yeah, mine's like IMAX nice tickets here are like closer to almost twenty. Yeah, an IMAX three D ticket here will cost you like seventeen pounds, and that's not even in the middle of London. That's just round around the corner. Right. Anyway, that's enough of how bad I have to theater suck. Um, <laughs> uh, let's talk about the movie club. That's like my last day. Yeah, I know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this month, I chose um, Glen Gary, Glen Ross, the uh, James Foley movie uh, written by David Mamet, based on the David Mamet play. Because I wanted to, I wanted to revisit that and talk a bit about what uh, that is like to revisit at this point in 2015. So, yeah. Mm. Uh, what did anyone think? Who wants to go first on their Glen Gary, Glen Ross thoughts? Oh, I'll go first since no one's jumping. Uh, I enjoyed it. It's one of those movies where it's <laughs> almost a little goofy how obviously it's based on a stage play mm-hmm. because like you hear the train pass every once in a while and there's very little set changes, but it kind of adds a strange charm to the film itself uh, because I don't find any of the characters especially likable outside of Jack Lemon. Uh, but it's not even because Jack Lemmon's character is going through what he's going through. I mean, it's kind of that, but it's also just, you know, Jack Lemmon has that cultural cachet. You see him and your heart melts. Uh, at least if, if you're me. And, um, <laughs> so like there's that. And then you've got all these jerks around him and doing this job that is soul crushing and has no future and they're also cutthroat about it that you're like frustrated watching it but yeah no i I really liked it i um hadn't seen it before and i was shocked that the famous always be closing alec baldwin scene is the only scene that alec baldwin is in that was really really surprising yeah and i don't know am i the only person that knew that that was his only scene uh didn't know or who, yeah, who didn't know? I mean, yeah, like, I feel like everyone knows that that wasn't that wasn't a scene in the play. They added that for the film. They made a new character. Really? Yeah, because no, I didn't even know that much. Because the play is way more sp- like you pick up on the what's going on through the dialogue, whereas the film says, "Okay, here's what's going on. Let's give a monologue to explain what the fuck is happening here." Okay, because I feel like that's Mamet's whole thing, like trying not to over-explain stuff. Like, you never quite know Jack Lemmon's home situation. You never understand why Ed Harris is um, the way he is. Um, actually, I think my favorite character in this film is probably Al Pacino. Uh, his, um, I can't remember his character's name. R- Ricky? Yeah, Ricky Ramona? Something like that, yeah. And he's... Roma? Roma. Yeah, Ricky Roma. Thank you. And I like how he... Like, the whole time he's talking to this guy about this weird stuff throughout the the opening when he's in the restaurant and yet like when it dawns on you oh he's selling to this guy it's like well i would never let a salesman sit and talk to me this long about anything (laughs) like oh wow i don't know i i thought it was really clever but um kind of a thin movie i don't know i don't know What what do you think people who wants to go next uh i liked it i thought it was fine i you very much i very much agree with you when you you say that it's 
very much based on a stage play, not necessarily because of its confined spaces or because of the the tenor of Mamet's dialogue, but because I guess I don't think this is very necessarily well directed as a film. I feel like there's a lot more potential to give these spaces um, a kind of claustrophobia. Because, like, Venus and Fur by Roman Polanski is also based on a play. Um, I don't remember the name of the playwright, but that takes place in one room throughout the entire thing. But he really utilizes um, all the different angles and the different spaces and the special relationships as a way to articulate um, that kind of confinement in an interesting way. And then this, I don't think, does it very well. Um, but I do think it's interesting how performative everyone is when they're in certain in certain contexts and in certain situations. Like, they're selling capitalism and they're selling the American dream ostensibly to each other as well as to themselves and to their customers. And I like the different tones that the different actors are taking depending on their style. Like, Jack Lemmon takes on this kind of pandering tone of voice and Al Pacino takes this uh, kind of supposed... I'm not bullshitting you, but really I am salesman voice. I, I think that's really interesting. Mm-hmm. I liked the generational stuff happening too, because it's like they hint over and over again that Jack Lemmon's been doing it a really long time back when it was like a really different kind of business. And uh, Al Pacino claims he's like learned a lot from him, but it's obvious that's not true. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Like, and then you've got Alan Arkin, who's kind of between them in age, but he doesn't seem to be, I don't know, he's not very smart, but he, I, I don't know what I'm trying to say. Well, like 90% it's, it's, of his lines are just repeating what Ed Harris has just said. Yeah, it's really funny. So I have two points here. Uh, they kind of don't have anything to do with each other. So the first off... Um, I love how weirdly timeless the movie feels. Um, the play was written in the mid eighties and the movie's from 92, right? Yes. Something uh, like that, yeah. Yet it evokes a time that I think is before either of them. Like the way that it portrays its universe to me feels like something from the sixties or seventies. Uh, and I would call back to, there's a, a documentary called salesman from 1969. Oh yeah. Uh, that is about Mazels, right yeah that's about door-to-door salesmen and what a hard life it is and it feels very much like it feeds directly into this but even in that movie they talk about this idea that like door-to-door salesmanship or like cold calling people is like a way of life that's going away and like today it basically doesn't exist outside of scamming old people i guess but um it's in, it, like to me that timeless quality is really interesting uh and gives it this like sense of place as like a piece of narrative that doesn't end up feeling dated despite the fact that all of the accoutrements about what the story is actually about are super dated um mm-hmm. because everything about its world becomes like almost like foreign due to how much displaced in time it feels um secondly uh, there was a point when we were watching it that Destiny was like, I can't believe anybody talks to each other like this in real life, uh, which is like a mammoth thing. But in reality, like I've worked in 
like a hundred percent male employee like workspaces before, and this is a hundred percent how men can talk to each other when you get the right dynamic of people where it's just like macho posturing and yelling and everyone like assembles this pecking order where like you have your alpha males and you might have multiple of them that all think of themselves as such and then various levels of subservience or backstabbing and passive aggression like this is the ideal of male socialization in a movie yeah uh, yeah, that was really shocking to me. I was like, nobody would ever like they're all cussing at each other. Like people would get fired. And we're yeah, like, no, specific, yeah. specifically, it's this idea that like everyone is like a hair trigger away from like these eruptions, mm-hmm. and there's no repercussion because the other person is going to turn around and do it eventually anyway. Like right. everyone is just going to have those like shouting meltdowns. And thus it becomes normalized. Like there's this like verbal violence that's seen as like just totally a part of what this social, like the social dynamic is. And that feels really genuine to me as much as Mamet is a, a screenwriter who writes like fun dialogue to listen to that in no way reflects human beings. <laughs> I, I thought was interesting actually the way that masculinity played so much into this film or this idea of masculinity, because like that, um, Alec Baldwin's character Blake um, says that you need brass balls in order to do this job and it seems like their entire conception of themselves as masculine creatures um, is precluded on whether they can make a deal mm-hmm. yeah well the the whole play and film I guess because uh, that's what we're talking about um, is this um, like con- continually about the uh, confluence of masculinity and capitalism like I think I described it on Twitter once as a horror movie where capitalism is the monster, um, <laughs> and and like as as Matt said about uh, all male workplaces, like I've worked for a while in uh, the uh, admin office of a workplace that was an IT training company, and the dynamic there was very similar. Except I was in the admin section, so most of the people I worked with were women, and so having the like in the other room glengarry Glen ross is happening as these people these like glorified microsoft office paperclips are posturing with each other and just destroying each other because you know that's this is their life has been wrapped like their entire concept of their masculinity and worth has been completely tied up in this job that is demonstrably worthless like in glengarry Glen ross these are middlemen selling shit to idiots and they're not even involved in like even in the process even in this dishonest gross process they are the most pointless part of it and yet they are still uh like the masculinity and capitalism are made in such a way that allows them to find like a sense of self-worth within that process and i thought that was really interesting one of the things i think the movie actually does it's really smart that as much as it's about capitalism it's also about this idea of like masculinity enforces itself through metaphors for sexual conquest Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. where like Mm -hmm. these characters are trying to fuck over these people and they explicitly stated as such every time and if someone is incapable of making a sale like their sexual orientation is questioned or their manhood is questioned uh, and you have everyone approaching it in like this very like you can code these like ways to like hit on people. Also, you have Ricky Romo with like the long tail like sale of like let's just slowly bring it around and like 
be self-depreciating and come from the cider angle. Jack Lemon is like quintessential nice guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and you got Alec Baldwin, who is just, you know, the big swing dick, like quite literally. Uh-huh. Uh, Alpha. Yeah. yeah. And I think that also dovetails into why everyone is so like perturbed by the stealing of the Glengarry leads, which is like ostensibly the actual plot of the movie. Um, because to them, like, it's not just, oh, someone stole these leads and it's bad. It's like this violation of this code of how everyone was going to like have this, con- like this contest to who would succeed, uh, that they all find like morally repugnant, even besides the like way it inconveniences their workflow and their workplace. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know about the well, cause Roma already has the Glengarry leads, uh, no, they were like they were ostensibly going to be for him, but, but he, he doesn't have them yet. Yeah, he does because he is he is selling Glengarry. Oh, right. like, sure, the whole point but, like, is he is... everyone everyone is really put off by the idea of someone stealing them. Oh, sure, like, but uh, like I don't think like I feel like that suggests an idea of a fairer playing ground in this contest that doesn't exist in the movie. Um, I think everyone totally sees it as this. Like everyone talks about the unfairness because the status quo of normally this is fair is presumed by everyone there. Yep. Mm-hmm. Otherwise they wouldn't be upset that they're like getting screwed over by getting bad leads because normally it's all like everyone best may the best man win handshake. Let's go get it mm-hmm. about it. Yeah. Uh, on a completely different note. Um, one of the things I thought was really interesting about the film is that despite being this just massively dialogue heavy, uh, thing like originally a play that that is pretty much straight directed that way. Uh, the some of the most powerful like performances within it are the most silent characters. Like I think uh, Alan Arkin and um, shit John, Jonathan Price. Is mm-hmm. that, is that yeah? yeah he, like yeah, he, those performances are the best ones. Like uh, Al Pacino has the most showy performance, but just watching Jonathan Price just just melt in front of this person and try his hardest to like. <laughs> fight against this person who is so domineering and impossible to be fucked over is um, in between in like him and his wife yeah yeah. he's like i just i can't and like that his physicality and the way that is directed is uh incredibly powerful because i feel like the uh film gets just as much out of its silences as it does its uh words despite the fact that there are a lot of words i would agree words 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 that's that that's one of the famous lines <laughs> yeah i'm trying to think of other stuff other stuff to say what else we got mm. yeah no i'm glad we watched this because it's one of those movies i've been trying to get around to mm-hmm. for a really long time and i've read a lot of Weirdly, I've I've only seen maybe one other movie written by David Mamet, but I've read a lot of his uh, opinions on how dialogue should be written and what is, what are his what, opinions? Well, you know, just like not over explaining things mm-hmm. and trying to be naturalistic in the way exposition is given, mm-hmm. uh, but go- showing con- context through environment instead of actual dialogue or like character behavior versus you know the ways other movies will do it because he just finds it really unrealistic but then it it in itself becomes kind of a strange artifice because it's like 
it's not very um subtle that they're showing and not telling i don't know that that maybe it's because i'm overthinking it because it's david mamet but you almost feel like it's one of those movies that's telling you no we're not going to explain this but we're not going to explain this either and and it's not even like everything happening is a great mystery because the whole comes together you know quite well and mm-hmm. it's a good movie it, it it i don't feel lost in it at all but um i don't know i i i'm glad that i've finally gotten around to this uh it is one of his less twisty works uh most of his stuff has way more um like ins and outs and back and forth and everything like unfolding on itself uh almost every david mamet film will like reach a point where you're like that's good and then we'll pull pull the camera out one twist too far and you're like that mm-hmm. uh he has a tendency of doing that uh, on his dialogue i actually think my favorite david mamet film is probably state of maine uh, yeah i've seen that one that's the one i've seen because i feel like david mamet's dialogue works so much better when like, he doesn't do it very often but when it's just this is a comedy this is a constructed thing like when it makes the the artifice more visible and accepts it rather than trying to ground it in this uh sweary naturalism um sweary naturalism <laughs> yeah uh yeah uh, i i feel like that's so much more effective and honest in the way it portrays the dialogue uh because the dialogue is in and of, like it is a reason for its own existence right it exists to be heard it is mm-hmm. it want the dialogue does convey things but it's more like here these rhythms that i have made here these words that i have written this is why you're here uh and in a comedy that's all about jokes and intricate things uh, like piling on top of each other that is more honest uh, than i feel like it is here yeah it works a little better and especially a comedy about like two different groups of people Mm -hmm. coming together in a silly way Mm -hmm. because that movie's about a it's a film crew in a small town right yeah it's been a really long time since does it have to be an old mill (laughs) but yeah Anyone anyone else got any final thoughts on Glengarry Glen Ross? I wish I had more to say because I feel like there should be a lot to say, but no. Which one is the one? Go on. Sorry, no, you go on. Oh, no, I was just going to say, I was hoping we'd have more to say and you're talking, so go on. (laughs) Oh, which one is the one where a professor is embroiled in a case... Uh, where he may have slept with a student. Mm, shit, uh, I know that one. Is hmm, which one is it? Is that, Does it begin with an O? Is it Oliana? Yeah, that one. Okay, I've never seen that one, but my friend watched it in one of his university classes, and like the professor apparently was very, um, uh, very vehement. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I saw Speed the Plow, which is one of his plays, last year in London, uh, which was interesting. It, uh, it was good because you got to watch Lindsay Lohan completely outact Richard Schiff. Wow. Cause Richard was she Schiff, good? She was great because Richard Schiff is just there. And I'm like, yeah, I love West Wing. love Toby. Let's go. Let's do this. And he's just phoning it in. And Lindsay Lohan's like, I'm in a play. I'm doing this. I'm, I'm here to work. And good just, for her. Good just for her. Completely act rings around him. It was it was amazing. Um, that makes me so happy to hear. I'm rooting <laughs> for Lindsay to get it together. Yeah. Uh, and, but that uh, play, I didn't like the ending of it. I thought like, oh right, David Mammon, nihilism. Okay. Because <laughs> uh, there is a hopelessness 
within his work that I feel is uh, unproductive or something that doesn't appeal to me as much anymore. It's a teenage thing. I can see why. Yeah, there's a hopelessness to this that is... Uh, I'm, I almost feel too young and female to relate to it uh, as far as Glengarry Glen Ross is concerned, but I don't know how to pinpoint it and express it properly, so I'm just going to leave it at that. Well, the hopelessness in this is a little different, is that it presents explicitly a system that cannot be beaten in any way, uh, whereas Speed the Plow is all about this person who's like, I'm going to fix the system, everything's going to be great, and then they just decide not to because they think it's a, like a pointless thing to do. Like, it's um, pure nihilism, the play. Like, come on. Uh, nihilism, the play. By David <laughs> Mamet. <laughs> so, yeah. But I guess I guess that is... that is, is that the end of everyone's... Uh, everyone's Glengarry Glen Ross thoughts? Gonna cool it? Well, I guess we yeah. are. I guess that's the end of that. And that's the end of the podcast. Well done, everybody. We made it to the end. Woohoo! Yeah, go us. Woo. Yeah, thank you for listening. Uh, we have questions. What, we don't have Do we have questions? We do have a question. What's the question? From my friend David Rudin, at David S. Rudin. <laughs> what is it? He asks, why do you deny the truth about Daniel Craig's run as Bond? He posits that all four movies are just parts of a, or a reboot or origin, only to be rebooted right after Craig ends his run and my answer to that is so what James Bond reboots itself every five minutes James Bond reboots itself every time there's a new film yeah. that's part of the thing everything is about recontextualizing the character um, and how we understand him throughout his cinematic history Because James, yeah. James Bond as a character was basically irrelevant when he started so every I don't agree with that not quite but like there is a Post World War Two, uh, like adventure nature to James Bond as like the, as a character, and as the Cold War drags further and further on, you get further and further from what James Bond means. So pretty much the majority of the run of James Bond films have been about trying to negotiate what, why, what, ja- what is what, why, like what do we want with James Bond? What's the point of him? And that's always going to be the central question in that franchise for as long as it continues to exist. That's my mm. take, at least. Does anyone else have a take? Are we good? Are we good to are we good to call that? I'm good. Come here. Yeah. All right. Then, uh, Destiny, you can tell us which movie are we going to watch next month. Well, friends, uh, this month for uh, the new year, I guess that's what it'll be. We're going to be watching. Trouble Every Day. Ooh. Uh, it's um, a Claire Denis movie. Is that how you pronounce her last name? Denis. Claire Denis. Claire Denis. Yes, French. Real French. Uh, came out in, let me find the page I was reading, 1994. Hold on. Sorry, everybody. I had it up and then I lost it. Um, 2001. 2001 whoops okay yeah and it is pretty much about a couple and their passionate french honeymoon and um cannibalism oh as you do (laughs) yep 
so uh i i hear that uh it's a good time it was uh, directed by claire denis cinematography by agnes godard music by tender sticks and um it's really gory so nice i'm excited for some melodramatic european art gore i hear i hear that cool <laughs> So I hope I hope only you would pick a Vincent Gallo starring movie. I know I was so grossed out when I I didn't know until after I picked it that Vincent Gallo was the lead actor in it. So I apologize in advance. (laughs) But hey, at least you didn't write it. And I say this as a Buffalo 66 fan. I've never seen any of Vincent Gallo's work, but I've heard that he's an asshole. He's the I mean, worst. He sells his own sperm on his website. He he Ooh. stole Julie Delpy's soul, so. <laughs> oh, yes, yes. <laughs> That's a great movie. Yeah. Why would she? Be- yeah, no. He sells his own sperm on his website, Who and he's like, that? no black people, please. No. <laughs> and he's the worst. He's really the worst. That's the worst. Putting you on blast, Vincent Gallo. You hear us? <laughs> I don't think that's like a controversial statement that Vincent Gallo sucks. Well, no, I'm sure most people agree, especially the ghost of Roger Ebert. <laughs> but he he re-reviewed the Brown Bunny, though. Oh, I know because it was re-edited. It didn't just come out of the kindness of his heart. <laughs> Regardless, uh, that's that. Let's bring this up to a close. Let's do the plug zone. Matt, where can we find you? I'm the host of Normal Mapping with Jackson Destiny. You can find it at normalmapping.com. It's about video games. Find me on Twitter at em underscore being. That's it. Cool. Destiny? At FridgeBuzz now on Twitter. Uh, I have a podcast at battlinggirls.com. I have a lot of podcasts, but Jackson can tell you more about that. I can, but Kyle? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Tyle Kerner, T-Y-L-E-K-U-R-N-E-R. Um, and you can find me writing around the internet, uh, my work, um, tilekerner.tumblr.com. And starting this week, I'm starting to write for uprocks.com as um, their entertainment contributor. So congrats. Find me over there. Thank you. Uh, you can find me at Headfuls Off on Twitter. You can see, find all my stuff at headfulsoff.com. I am on uh abnormal mapping with matt and destiny and i do goof zone that goof dot zone with destiny which is our podcast about mental health it's really good so yeah thank you very much for listening to this trash bag ratio and we'll see you next ides with more movie talk yay oh yeah oh we're <laughs> so enthused <laughs> <laughs>